Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast. It's actually a very new podcast, at least at the time of this recording. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. Very similar to Around the World in 80s Movies, but of course covering 90s films, but also more recent movies that are influenced by the 80s and the 90s. And you can check that out by clicking the link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a film that's actually not from the 80s or the 90s, just before the 1980s, 1979 to be exact. But I'm covering it because this is a film that spawned a series of movies that continued on into the 1980s. And 1990s as well. In fact, they're still making movies based on this film today. I think there's over 20 associated films, if you want to count the series or spinoffs and all these very tangential properties as well. But it all started here from 1979's The Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is an R-rated film. It does have some disturbing images, violence, sexuality, and language. The runtime is an hour and 57 minutes. James Brolin and Margot Kidder are the main stars, with supporting roles going to Rod Steiger, Don Stroud, Murray Hamilton, John Larch, Natasha Ryan, Casey Martell, Mino Palouse, Michael Sachs, Helen Shaver, Amy Wright, and Val Avery. The director is Stuart Rosenberg, and the screenplay credited to Sander Stern. Now, before I talk about the film, The Amityville Horror, I have to give a little bit of background information. Now, obviously, there are many podcast or a lot of documentaries that are based on the supposed true life events that inspired this movie, which is primarily fictional. But there are some things that were very factual that serve as background to where we're going to begin. So let's go back to November 13th, 1974. We find a 23-year-old man named Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. He shot and murdered his parents, as well as his two brothers and two sisters, using a high-powered rifle as they were sleeping in their Amityville, Long Island home. DeFeo would go on to plead insanity. He claimed he was commanded by voices that he heard from demonic spirits within the family's house. Nevertheless, he received six consecutive life sentences for his crimes. The house went unsold for a year because of the grisly nature of these murders. The next residents of that Amityville home were George and Kathleen Lutz and their three children, who moved in and before the month was done, they found out that their dream house was really the home of their nightmares, and they fled after a month of experiencing what they called demonic phenomena. Around this time, there was a writer named Jay Anson. He was researching for this documentary on The Exorcist for a company called Professional Films. Professional Films was a, a company run by Ronald Saland and Elliot Geisinger and they specialized in making behind-the-scenes featurettes for movies. Anson had worked as a writer for them for 15 years. After Anson met with Father Jean Nicola, he was the Roman Catholic Church's American occult investigator who served as a technical advisor on The Exorcist, they started discussing that they should collaborate on a book. They were going to call it Psychology of the Devil. It never really got off the ground, but Tam Mossman, who happened to be a friend of Anson's, who worked as an editor for Long Island publishing company Prentice Hall Books, he introduced Anson to George and Kathleen Lutz. 
about their experiences with evil within the DeFeo home that was making waves within their Amityville community, and they had sought out a book publisher to try to clear the air as to their experiences there. Lutz claimed he wasn't trying to sell a story, but he agreed to talk to Anson in particular, hoping he could clear up the record publicly. Anson recorded 20 taped interviews with the Lutz family. Anson remained skeptical about the story, but he also felt that George Lutz was not really somebody who seemed to possess enough imagination to make up a bunch of nonsense with such vivid detail. After discussing the Lutz account with Father Nicola, Nicola connected him with the family's priest, a man named Father Robert Picararo. He was renamed to Mancuso in the book, and in the film he's called Father Delaney. Pecoraro corroborated certain aspects of the Lutz story. The priest was brought in by Kathleen Lutz to bless the house, and as he did, he felt a coldness overtake him, a slap in the face, a disembodied voice telling him to get out. The priest tried to call the Lutzes after leaving immediately, but static interference kept ruining the communication. He developed blisters or boils on his hands that his doctor really didn't have any explanation for, other than maybe it was anxiety. Anson knew that this corroboration that, as incredible as it sounded, meant that there was definitely something to the story that the public probably needed to know. Whether their story was all true or all hogwash, he really couldn't determine, but the Lutz family and the priest seemed to absolutely believe what they were reporting to him. Anson felt that he now had enough material to write a book on these experiences, his first book, and he compiled the most compelling parts and began to type while he was staying in the home of his widowed sister as he recovered from a heart condition. Anson felt that his book, which he titled The Amityville Horror, A True Story, it could be more sensational than the hottest bestseller of the 1970s, The Exorcist, because this terrifying account actually happened, at least according to the people that experienced it. After showing Prentice Hall the first two chapters that he'd written, they signed Anson to a contract that included him retaining TV and film rights to his story. Anson's professional films colleagues, Saland and Geisinger, they bought out these rights from him and began shopping the concept around to several major movie studios. They all rejected it, except they received word from television network CBS. They thought that this premise did have some potential because these kinds of stories were pretty hot. They were getting a lot of ratings. They bought the rights with Saland and Geisinger to make a made-for-TV movie. Around this time, though, film producer Samuel Z. Arkoff, he read the book and he became a huge fan of it. He thought it had actually very good commercial potential. He entered into an agreement with CBS to transfer the rights to his outfit, American International Pictures, who are an independent label working in partnership with MGM. They bought out the rights for $200,000, a profit percentage, and an agreement that CBS could air the first two network showings after the theatrical run. Now, when it was finally published in 1977, The Amityville Horror, Jay Anson's book, topped the bestseller list, longer than any book since The Exorcist. AIP determined that The Amityville Horror could be the vehicle to turn around this B-movie image of their company. They offered a budget of 5 to $7 million, and Anson the first crack at turning his book into a screenplay. While the Lutzes had a share of the book sales, their contract didn't really cover ancillary rights, so the Lutzes didn't receive anything from the film except for some consultation fees. After Anson did an additional revision to his screenplay, AIP decided to hand it to somebody with much more experience writing screenplays, Laird Koenig, writer of the 1974 novel called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, and he also wrote the screenplay adaptation for the 1976 film. 
AIP, they looked for top-name talent, at least what they could get for such a modest budget. They initially offered the director's chair to Nicholas Rogue, who turned it down. They later landed Stuart Rosenberg. He was best known at that time for Cool Hand Luke. Rosenberg brought in some of the crew that he had worked with just recently on the Charles Bronson vehicle called Love and Bullets. Cinematographer Fred Konekamp, who was an Academy Award winner for The Towering Inferno. And Rosenberg's go-to composer, generally, Lalo Schifrin. He also brought in Love and Bullets co-star Rod Steiger as well. Schifrin would go on to earn an Academy Award nomination for his score for the Amityville Horror, which utilized some child choir voices, and that became a staple for horror films for many years to come, including Poltergeist, which I covered recently on this show. Rosenberg was not keen on Koenig's latest revision, which he felt emphasized more cheap scares than character relationships that he was more interested in. He happened to be a director that handled a lot of dramas. He was not somebody very interested or even experienced with flights of fancy. So he handed the screenplay duties to a Canadian doctor turned writer named Sandor Stern. Stern happened to be a friend of Anson, and he casually asked him if he believed the Lutz story. Anson said he only related the story that he was being told. He didn't really judge it. Knowing this, Stern concerned himself very little as to what was actually true, and he just decided to use what was written before to make for a more compelling, albeit maybe more embellished, version of the Lutz story. Stern developed narrative through lines into the story, such as George beginning to lose his mind, the priest's thwart attempts to try to visit the home. Sander was not concerned with adherence to facts. He wrote to make this a better movie. He built his revision on prior screenplays, not on the book or any kind of consultation with the Lutz family. He also bolstered the family life touches, marital dynamics, financial pressures, familial relationships, connections to neighbors and friends. They were all more accentuated while they removed elements that he felt broke away from the groundedness. Beds levitating, a marching band appearing in the living room, a horned white devil that chases the Lutzes away. Those were in the Anson book, but he felt that they were a little too fantastical. Stern preferred occurrences that could be ambiguously observed as coincidental, perhaps, or maybe experiences that could be chalked up as just somebody's imagination. They were experienced by only one character, at least until the conclusion. In the completed story, we start the film with a young man shooting his parents and siblings while they sleep. And the horrific events shocked this small town of Amityville, but the house was deemed worthy for sale, and that's where the Lutz family enters in. They buy the house because it's going for a much cheaper rate because it has this sordid back history. Not long after moving in, weird things do start happening within the home, starting with the fact that the preacher who comes to bless the house is scared out of his wits. He suffers mysterious ailments that he feels has been inflicted on him by the evil within the home. The Lutz family themselves start exhibiting strange behavior, with the father, George, always feeling cold, and he has little motivation to do anything more than just chop wood for the fire that never seems to warm him up. Doors and windows open and close. The daughter starts talking to this unseen friend. The dog starts sniffing around the cellar, trying to dig up something only he knows is there. There's way more to the story than that, but I don't want to go into spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it. Now, deviations to the script occurred that Stern was not as keen on. Some of the sequences that he felt would elicit the biggest scares that he threw in were altered in favor of elements that he considered to be pretty much cliche in movies. For instance, Stern wrote in a, a completely fictional scene where this babysitter ends up trapped in the closet of the children's bedroom. Now, we would be there in the dark with her. It would be terrifying. 
if it were done in a much more horrific fashion, and she would be startled by the sight of evil-looking dolls falling on her. The babysitter does remain in the finished film, as does her being trapped in the closet, but the dolls are removed, and the experience is mostly limited to just not being able to get out of her predicament for hours while one of the children ignores her cries. Green slime in the walls in the movie, that was an embellished effect from Lutz's discovery of a gelatinous substance that he found on the carpets around the house. He thought that the kids might have spread there. In Lutz's account, the water in the toilet was not black sludge as we see in this movie, but the porcelain itself had turned black within the water. A mysterious side room painted red within the house, kind of a storage space under the stairs. That was real, but the hidden room in the movie is more like behind a wall that's paved over in the basement with pools of blood. Presumably, they discover a gateway to hell. As for the casting, they pursued several leading men before hiring James Brolin. At that time, Brolin was mostly known for appearing as Dr. Stephen Kiley on TV's Marcus Welby, M.D., Brolin was not somebody who was interested in doing a, another cheapo horror flick. He had just done one in 1977 called The Car, but his agent mentioned how well the book was selling, and he encouraged him to reconsider, because this would be a high-profile gig. And there wasn't a script yet, but Brolin's agent did hand him the book to read, and Brolin started reading it a few days later, around 7 p.m. one evening. And by 2 a.m., he found himself still reading the book, riveted by this very sensational story. When a pair of pants that he had hung on a door fell down while he was reading this book at 2 a.m., Roland jumped up immediately from his chair in terror, and that's when he knew this story was a real grabber. This was likely to be quite a success, if in the right hands. Now, Brolin took the role hoping for a hit film. He thought this was going to catapult his status. Finally, as a leading man, he had tried several times before. It just never worked out. Ironically, his portrayal of George Lutz in this film, as he begins going off the deep end, was so unflattering that he actually struggled to find work for the next several years. Although Albert Broccoli contemplated making Brolin the first American James Bond when Roger Moore was holding out for more money to make Octopussy. Roland had just paid 750 grand for a, a, an estate near Santa Barbara, California, which is where, where I live. So he could now relate to the Lutz predicament in a way. He did, however, look into the history of the house before he was purchasing it, though. Although many associate Margot Kidder with the Superman films, she did come to early prominence in show business. She had done horror flicks that became cult classics over the years, Brian De Palma's Sisters and Bob Clark's Black Christmas, most notably. She said that she took these horror films because they offered pretty good money and they were fun to make. She called the Amityville Horror her paycheck movie after rising in the public eye by becoming Lois Lane in Superman. She did think that the Amityville Horror was a terrible movie, but it did amuse her with how silly it eventually gets. Kidder happens to be an atheist. And she couldn't really believe the amount of crazy Christians that were taking this all seriously. And she felt that these people seemed to believe the lies because demonic possessions and haunted houses somehow proved their religious beliefs were not all lies too. The actors were not concerned about playing the Lutz family as they really existed. The story was from the book, but the personalities of the Lutzes were theirs to flesh out how they saw fit despite portraying real people. Mostly they were putting themselves into these roles because the producers encouraged them to make the parts their own. Kidder and Brolin, they initially had an instant rapport when they met. They liked each other from the moment that they first saw each other, but things did change dramatically as they started acting in front of the camera. Their approaches to acting clashed dramatically. Brolin, he wanted to do every scene exactly as it was meant to be done in the script. 
But Kidder, she tended to want more interplay. She never liked doing the same take twice. She wanted to explore the dialogue. She wanted to give more nuance to the situations beyond the script, which Brolin despised. As for where it actually was shot, the Amityville townsfolk did not want negative publicity by allowing filming in their town. The actual house was not ideal to film in regardless because it had a very tricky layout and the the crew did have some superstitious feelings toward it. The producers went along with those superstitions. They concluded that if anything tragic actually happened during the shoot, they would probably feel morally responsible. And if nothing happened, it probably wouldn't be good commercially either because it would tend to disprove the demonic house story. Geisinger scouted several homes all the way from Maine to South Carolina. They secured a similar three-story Dutch colonial house in Tom's River, New Jersey, that they rented for about $12,000. They remodeled it to resemble as much as they could the real Amityville house. They relocated the residents of that house to a nearby town for the duration of their filming. Additional work for the interiors was done at MGM Studios in Culver City to try to, to handle the more haunted house effects. Now, things went without incident during the production. In fact, Brolin called it the smoothest film he'd ever worked on, and he attributes that to Rosenberg, who had everything planned out and prepared in advance for the actors. Kidder did find the schedule maybe was a little bit too rigid. She hoped to go to the UK premiere of Superman and meet Queen Elizabeth II, but she was denied because they were breeding thousands of black houseflies in a special insect laboratory for a few scenes in this film, and they couldn't change the hatch date. Rosenberg usually let the cast and crew off early for the day, and the shoot eventually finished under budget two weeks ahead of its nine-week schedule. Ironically, AIP was a bit chagrined, though, at the lack of complications to the movie. They encouraged the actors, when they were doing interviews, to invent strange things that may have occurred to them to kind of spice up the mystique of the movie. AIP launched a $6 million advertising campaign. The advertising campaign was more than the budget of the movie. They appeared for a special 90-minute Merv Griffin show that was dedicated to the Amityville horror, not only the movie, but the books and some of the surrounding material. The Lutzes were on that show as well as a couple of the main cast. AIP also supplied movie theaters with this pre-showing horror soundtrack to play that contained this symphonic score filled with screaming and eerie creaks and thunderclaps to try to get audiences in the mood for the frights that they were about to experience. The film, in the end, all told, it was something that drew in a lot of audiences. The film became a hit. It broke the box office record, in fact, for independent films, $86 million it took in domestically, only trailing to Superman for grosses in 1979. By the way, Margot Kidder co-starred in both of those films, so she was a hot commodity coming out of that. And it was also just as big a hit in many international markets as well. For several years afterward, it was the number one highest-earning independent film of all time. Although I don't think that the Amityville Horror is a very scary film by today's standards, there are a few demonic possession flicks that are much more scary, including The Exorcist. I think that this film did strike a nerve with some audiences who find the American dream getting savaged, gave it a little bit of an extra edge during this period in American society, you know, seeing everything that one strove for in life decimated by forces that 
you can't control. That's like every adult's nightmare. Not that there really aren't eerie happenings within the film. You know, you have the fly infestations, blood oozing from the walls, uh, mysteriously aborted phone calls, and icy chills in a warm house, body disfigurations, and eventually a giant red-eyed pig ghost of some sort, a demon <laughs> pig. But one of the recurring horrors in the film lies not in those supernatural events, but from the very grim reality of financial insecurity and seeing one's dreams implode, the loss of cash, the inability to perform one's job, the difficulty of keeping one's home. Those were all the things that many in American society were experiencing at that time as real-world issues in the recession of the late 1970s. There are also issues of George's feelings of failure as a father, as a provider, as a protector of this family. He can't pay the bills. The kids have not really accepted him fully as their father. He can't hold down a job. He suffers sexual dysfunction. And ultimately, he seems to be doing more harm than good to the people he loves. Skeptics of the Lutz story claim that the real-life George, his anxiety about these things is probably what caused him to make up a story and to sell it once it seemed like that was the answer to all of his problems, just as the purchase of the house had been a promise of this better life a month earlier. George associates material possessions as the way to success, the way to happiness, and the love of his family, and his nightmare is his realization that he's gone into debt, achieving none of that. He married a widow with three children. He bought a giant house in the neighborhood that he likely probably couldn't even afford the property taxes for, and without having any real means on how to pay for it all. His only way out, these skeptics presume, is that he will lie about the reasons for his total implosion, that they were not his doing. And in so doing, George finds the way out of his predicament, the lie that catapults him into being involved with a best-selling book, a smash hit film, and national notoriety. Now, perhaps the most surprising thing, I think, about the Amityville Horror is that it has had a surprising staying power. It spawned at least one prequel right after this, a multitude of official and unofficial spinoffs. I think somebody recounted that there may be 22, depending on how you count them. There was a remake in 2005 with Ryan Reynolds. I think the reason why I personally find it surprising is that I don't feel like the original 1979 film is particularly good. It is creepy. It certainly does creep certain audiences out during certain scenes, people who enjoy stories of demonic possession. It's still rather dreary and very rudimentary in the way that it plays out. The creep factor is definitely high, but the there's a crap factor involved that's just as comparable. It's pretty overblown. It's underdeveloped in many respects. There are story threads all through this film that never get resolved for whatever reason they're brought up and it's just a mess in terms of narrative. Now, while haunted house flicks are rarely logical or realistic, it's never really clear what the parameters are as the powers within the house in this film. Sometimes the house lets its intentions be known to a person right away, others not for a long time, if ever. For some reason, the house is also able to haunt people that aren't even on the premises, such as when they're driving in a car miles away or in a faraway church or when they're on the phone with somebody from the house. I mean, it's just, even if you believe in the paranormal, it doesn't even make sense within that sphere. It plays by its own set of rules that have nothing to do with, purportedly, a real story, supposedly. Now, Rosenberg, as a director, I think he's good, depending on the material, he helmed classics, obviously, Cool Hand Luke I mentioned earlier. Also, Brubaker and the Pope of Greenwich Village after this. So he's a pretty good director, but I do think that 
he seems a bit befuddled with the atmospheric horror genre. It's not something he was very comfortable doing anyway. He doesn't really build adequate suspense, and he focuses instead on some unpleasant imagery whenever the film loses momentum. I do think that there's a solid cast here, but the performances are all over the place. You know, we have issues with the source material being a primary problem, but Rod Steiger, you know, he's he, he's at an 11. James Brolin's at like a four in terms of intensity. Margot Kidder, it varies from scene to scene. It's just all over the place. It's hard to really get a grasp as to what exactly they're going for from scene to scene. And without a narrative that really ties it all together, it's just a film that gives you just enough to titillate, but not enough to really satisfy. I think there is a schlock factor involved. You know, a lot of that came from this book from first-time writer Jay Anson. And, you know, you remove the assumption of truth, and what you have left is a very rigidly straightforward and more than a bit cheesy tale of horror. And that happens to really fill a cultural void that people were hungering for in between The Exorcist and The Shining, which came out just the next year. So as much as I really like a lot of aspects of this film, by the way that I grade films, that constitutes a two and a half star movie out of four. Two and a half stars means it had the tools, it had the talent to be something more. Obviously, you had a lot of talent involved behind and in front of the camera, but it never really coalesces, I feel, into a truly satisfying whole Enough for me to give it a wholehearted recommendation for most people. I think horror movie fans, especially of films of the 1970s, this will probably sate their desire. But for me, I think that there was a chance to do something more, something special, something more interesting. Stanley Kubrick did it better a year later with The Shining. So this seems almost instantly antiquated, despite the fact that its legacy has continued on in cinema for a very long time. So... The best I could give, the Amityville Horror is two and a half stars out of four. Obviously, I'm going to continue on with some of the films from the Amityville series throughout the 1980s. Going forward three years from the release of this film is 1982's Amityville 2, The Possession. It's a film that I actually consider better than this one, even though this one definitely made much more money and is much more popular today. But there's just something special about Amityville 2. I'm not saying it's a better film by objective standards, but it definitely does have an edge that the Amityville horror does seem to lack in many respects. So I do encourage you to check that out if you want to get to the review on my next episode. Amityville 2, The Possession. Looking forward to talking about that much more next time. If you have your own thoughts on the Amityville Horror, you know, if you think that the Amityville Horror is one of the all-time horror classics for a specific reason, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. I might read it on my show. QWIPSTER.net is where you can find my contact information, my Gmail, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there if you want to keep in touch. Don't forget my 90s movie show, To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link there at the site as well. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 